Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, we're going to talk about the power of devotion, and the thing about devotion and faithfulness and um, steadfastness and loyalty is that it's an all-or-nothing endeavor, that you can't be 90% loyal and claim loyalty. Wouldn't you agree? I can't be 99% loyal and still claim loyalty. Loyalty, devotion, it's a 100%, it's an I'm all in endeavor. And if I'm not all in, well, then I'm not really truly loyal. And I think that's partly the reason why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if any man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Because can I claim loyalty to my wife if I'm thinking thoughts about other women? Not really. I'm just lying to myself. So as I come into this topic this morning, I'm reminded of how difficult it is that you and I, we struggle with loyalty. And I'm not saying that to shame anybody. That's, I'm in the same boat. I mean, the truth is, I'm a selfish person. And I would rather be more devoted to me than I am to you. But at the same time, devotion is something that I want. I desperately want it from the friendships that I have, the people in my life. Don't you? And it's just this really interesting tension that we have because I want loyalty, but at the same time, I don't always want to give it. And so this morning, my prayer is that as we go through this and we see this couple uh, displaying loyalty, and then we, we also celebrate the the loyalty of Jesus, the devotion of Jesus to us, my prayer is that you and I will be inspired to say, okay, God, I'm going to step up my game, and I need to demonstrate a greater level of devotion and loyalty. Is that, that's where we're going this morning, okay? So turn in your Bibles to the Song of Songs, chapters 7 and 8. We're going to be there and look at sections from each of those two chapters. In his 1991 novel entitled Generation X, Douglas Coupland coined a term and he put it in the footnotes in the book, and the term is starter marriage, referring to marriages like buying a house. You have a starter house, you have a starter marriage. The assumption is that the first one is not going to make it so it's kind of a trial, and you live and you learn and you move on. The term starter marriage really took off a few years later, and it became popular by an article written in the New York Times by Deborah Shoemaker, or I'm sorry, Shoepak, in which she spelled out this disturbing trend among millennials and Gen Xers. She defined a starter marriage, quote unquote, as a first marriage that lasts five years or less and ends without the couple having had children. Starter marriage. 
The statistics certainly support our concept. 20% of first marriages end within the first five years. Divorce rates are highest among couples who are in their 20s. 48% of millennials support a form of marriage that allows an easy divorce. And two-thirds of this age group do not believe that marriage is, quote, until death parts us. So apparently, this age group tends to have an elastic definition of the word forever. And it makes sense if you think about it. Our national divorce rate is about 52%. It's been like that for a while. And the church is not any better in its statistics. So young people would naturally begin to assume that my first marriage is not going to work out. In fact, Experts say that one of the reasons contributing to the trend of starter marriages is the loss of good role models, meaning their parents were probably divorced. Another reason is that our culture has changed the meaning of marriage. Marriage has become an expression of self-fulfillment. I get married because it makes me feel good. I get married because it, quote, feels right. I get married because you complete me. I get married because you make me feel whole, satisfied, loved, all those sorts of things. You give me a sense of belonging, which is great until the marriage begins to require something of me. Then what do I do when marriage begins to hurt when marriage stops fulfilling me. Pastor Ben Stewart says that many people, by the way, I would recommend Ben Stewart's whole series on the Song of Solomon. It was really, really good. Ben Stewart says that many people see marriage as a capstone, not as a cornerstone. A capstone means that it's a goal in a series of goals. Like I have goals uh, about my education. I have goals about the kind of job I want to have, how much money I'm going to make, the the type of house I'm going to live in and build. And then marriage, well, that's just one of my goals. It's the icing on top of all the goals after I've completed the others. It's like it finishes my, quote, list of things to do before I'm 30 type thing. And then people get it, and they discover it's not what I expected it would be, and then they bail out. But in the past, Ben Stewart says, that marriage was seen not as a capstone, it was a cornerstone, meaning it was a necessary element to building a functional adult life. A young person would bring their strengths, their weaknesses, their family background, merge that together with, the other, with her family background and strengths and so forth, and then together we build a life from that. So marriage was seen as the cornerstone. Now, obviously, starter marriages are not the heart of God, and they're not what God designed in marriage. Marriage is sacred. Do you agree? In Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Jesus said this. He said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That means that your marriage, husband, wife, it's a God thing. And regardless of the reasons that you had for getting married when that took place, now that you are married, you are the result of God doing 
something mysterious and amazing. He takes these two people and he merges them together to become one flesh. And you cannot rip that apart without causing a lot of heartache in the process. I didn't read them all, but article after article, as I was browsing through regarding starter marriages, uh, pointed to the little secret that a lot of people don't like to share. Jennifer Anastasi writes it this way. I think she says it best. Starter marriages may sound in vogue, but divorce is still divorce, and the same rules apply in the aftermath. Bouncing back from a divorce, she says, is always difficult even if the marriage is short, childless, and you're still in your 20s. Well said. No matter how you slice it, no matter how we might pretend like it's okay, a broken marriage is still broken. And it means broken hearts, broken homes, broken lives, brokenness. And at the end of the day, the thing that you and I are looking for is devotion. It's, I, I want somebody who's going to be loyal to me. I want somebody who's going to make that commitment to me. Somebody with whom I can make that commitment. That person. That's what we're looking I want my person. Who's my person? We're all looking for that. I, I wonder if maybe if, if our search for that is maybe not an echo of the thing we lost in the Garden of Eden when we sinned against God. You know, we, we had it, didn't we? We had it. In a, in a right relationship with God. And then we rebelled against him and we, we broke everything. And I think there's something inside of my soul and yours that is just longing and aching to have at least one person in this world that I can bond with like that. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who's truly reliable? It's the heart cry of every human being. It reminds me of Billy Joel's song. You know that song? Honesty is hardly ever heard. Everyone is so untrue. There you go. I thought I was thought for a second. Wait a second. You don't know that song? That's a classic, Billy Joel. Yeah, it's depressing, but it's a reality. Proverbs 19.22 says, What a person desires is unfailing love. That's what I want. A faithful friend who's a faithful friend. And in marriage, we want the same thing. We expect this person's going to be faithful. This is going to be my closest ally. This person's going to have my back, and I'm going to have their back. This, this person. We're in this for the long haul. And this provides a sense of security and a sense of belonging that, quite frankly, money can't buy and worldly success can't even match. This is why the Song of Songs, written by King Solomon, it celebrates, it illustrates the power of devotion, of what happens when you get one person, one man, one woman committing to one another like this. It's incredibly powerful. Now, this is probably a good time to answer a, a sticky question, the elephant in the room, as it were. Uh, some of you might be wondering, how is it that a guy like Solomon could write a song about a love relationship between one man and one woman? If you know anything about Solomon, we know a couple of things. We know, first of all, he was given wisdom, and we know that because wisdom, he was given riches, but we also know that Solomon had 
a lot of women in his life. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And a concubine is a legal girlfriend. So he had 1,000 women. And we would say, what a hypocrite. How could a guy like Solomon with 1,000 women write a song like this about monogamous love? And I think there's a couple of quick quick little answers that might scratch the itch. Number one is this. The Song of Songs mirrors in style to Egyptian love poetry. It, it same sort of genre. And we know that Solomon's first wife was an Egyptian, an Egyptian princess. So it's very possible that Solomon wrote this song for his first wife. And he did it in a style that would be familiar to her. Now, you'd say, obviously, it went downhill from there. But, uh, you know, he wrote it with great intentions. And the second thing you could say is perhaps that Solomon is writing this to say, hey, don't do what I did. Um, this is God's ideal. He's saying, God, this is God's intention. This is his heart. But I didn't do that. So don't follow my example. Don't do what I did. Do what I say is essentially what he's saying. Now, I don't know if that satisfies your concerns. It's the best I got for now. I mean, I guess you could say a third answer would be perhaps, well, Solomon wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God can use any old goober that he wants to use, even a player like King Solomon, and that's what you got. So that's good news for you and me, because if God used Solomon to write a song about love, he could use you to do all kinds of things, couldn't he? See, so that's the Lord. That's our, that's our good God. Now, today we're going to look at the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Talk about the power of devotion. In the process, we're going to grab some insight about how to build devotion in our marriages so that they go the distance, and we're going to gain a deeper appreciation for Christ's devotion to us. Now, I want to just say this. Maybe you are a divorcee. I know that a number of us are. Please don't hear this as shame. I, I'm not at all intending to shame you or anything. There's none of that here. No, no judgment here. We are all learning. Right? We're all on a learning curve. However, I'll say this. If you're remarried, I believe that the marriage you're in is blessed by God, and he wants that to go the long haul. Amen? If you're single... And you say, well, boy, this, this doesn't really apply to me. You're talking about married people. Uh, actually, no, we all want devotion. In friendships, do you not want a devoted friend? I mean, I want a devoted spouse, yes, but I also want devoted friendships. And I want to be that person who's a devoted friend. And I want them to be devoted to me. And there are some lessons that we can learn from this uh, about being devoted and the power of devotion whether it's in marriage or it's in another friendship. It could even be at work. I mean, we want loyal work relationships too, do we not? So, I mean, it, this applies in all of our relationships. So I think we can learn from it, although this is directly related to marriage, of course. But here we go. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 5 says this, he is singing about her, and he says, how beautiful 
Your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter, your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. And then we go over to chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, and she is singing, and she says, if only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. The friends sing, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? She sings, under the apple tree, I roused you. There, your mother conceived you. There, she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Okay, so we look at verse chapter 8, verse 1. She says, I wish you were like my brother so that I could kiss you. Ew. So what's, what's going on there? What she's saying, okay, she's, she's not like, okay. It's, what she's saying is this. You know, back then, public displays of affection between lovers, between husbands and wives was not appropriate, was not permitted. However, in public, between family members, if I saw you on the street, I would greet you, or even a close friend, rather. I could greet you with, and you've seen the Middle Eastern kisses, the you know, each cheek and a big embrace and so forth. That was appropriate. And so she's essentially saying, hey, I wish you were like my brother because who, I want everybody to know how much I love you. I would love to just plant one on you in public, but I can't do that because I want everybody to know how much I love you. See, her love for him is not a secret. And then verse 4, we have her challenging the young girls of Jerusalem again. And we've already talked about this. She does this three times throughout the song. And she says, I'm telling you, do not awaken love until the right time. Why? Because love is so powerful. Once you let that thing out of the gate, it's going to begin to take over. And she says, do not stir it up. Hold it back, she says. And then the friends sing in verse 5. I love this. This really, we're coming to the, 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 the culmination of the book, okay, of the song. I keep calling it a book, the song. And so this is the crescendo of the song. And they say, who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? This is beautiful because if you remember from chapter one, as the song began, the woman was insecure, 
Do you recall that we've touched on that a couple weeks ago? She's, she begins this relationship feeling insecure and, and, you know, about how she looks and so forth. And she's gone from that as this peasant girl, insecure, and now she is this queen and she is leaning on the arms of her beloved. And there's a, there's a sense of trust there, isn't there? You think about leaning. If I lean on something, I'm, I'm trusting it, aren't I, to hold me up? And so she says, you're leaning on the arms of your beloved. The two of them are leaning on one another. This happens as couples spend a lifetime together, as they remain married throughout the decades together. You know, Karis's grandparents, they, they really are a couple of my heroes, passed away a number of years ago, but her, her grandparent, grandma and grandpa cast him. They uh, died just three months apart from one another. They both, they were married almost 70 years, and they were into their 90s, and, uh, and you know, when you do that, it's like their lives were sewn together, you know? And then, and then when one of them went, they, the other one just, our theory is they really just couldn't last much longer. I mean, it was, was it. Their lives were that entwined. They leaned on one another. That, when they, and they, they actually shared a room in the nursing home together their last couple of years, you know. They were, all, they were together like that all the way. And, and you think, isn't that really what we all want? You know, we dream about growing old together, don't we? That's kind of what young people dream of, and you get married. I want to grow old with you. I want to, I want to live through all of life's ups and downs together, and, and I want over time for my heart to become sown with your heart, you know, for the, us to begin leaning on one another. And, and you know, that's, it's funny, that, but then we forget that loyalty takes a lot of hard work. Like we, we admire this picture of this couple leaning on one another, and we admire folks like Karis's grandparents, and you say, oh, that's so sweet, we love that. But then we fail to remember how much work it takes to get that. There was a lot of dying to themselves to make this work. The boss, Bruce Springsteen, he sings, everyone dreams of a love faithful and true. Everyone dreams of it, but then putting in the work to get it. See, it's a different story. Or I like uh, Fetty Wap, the rapper. He says, my whole thing is loyalty. Loyalty over royalty. <laughs> See, how's that? Loyalty over royalty. This all got me thinking the other day about what the enemies of devotion, what, what are the enemies to my devotion? You know, like, we all want to be devoted. I think that every one of us would say, oh, yes, I want that to be me. But what are the things that undermine our ability to be devoted like this, to have this kind of leaning on one another like they did? And I came up with a couple of things. And I admit I don't have any experts to, you know, back this up. This is just what I got as I was praying about it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, too, at some point. But here's some of the enemies of devotion. Despair is one of them. This, this sense that nothing's going to change. I, I need a hope for something better in the future. That's what inspires me, you know, to go through the hard times now. And when I lose that sense 
And sometimes you do in marriage lose that sense of hope and become despairing. That will undermine my ability to remain devoted. Uh, disappointment. I get into marriage and I realize this is not what I expected it would be. I think if every married couple was honest, if you catch us in a moment of authenticity, single people, we would tell you that this, is our, this, this was our experience. I mean, yes, it's great. I love my wife. I love being married. But it's not everything I thought it would be. There are, there are expectations that were not met. And we all get into marriage, we get into friendships with these romantic notions, and the real thing never quite adds up to the fantasy. John Eldridge in Sacred Romance, the book Sacred Romance, he says, married people can be the loneliest on earth, not for some failure of the marriage, but because they have tasted the best there is of human relationships and know that it's not all that it was meant to be. We, we, get, we get into this thing, we say, oh, this is the best of human relationships. I mean, it doesn't get any better than, than a marriage. And then we realize, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's harder than I thought it was going to be. There are disappointments here. This does not meet my expectations. And what John Eldridge says is this, the longing in your heart for loyalty is a longing for Jesus. And nobody on earth can fill that for you. Karis cannot fill my need for loyalty, my longing for loyalty. Only Jesus can meet that need. And we can, we can, in lesser ways, I guess, serve one another in that way. But ultimately, what I want is that loyalty with Jesus. The third thing is dehumanizing. Uh, we have this sense that um, people are not permanent. And I think our culture certainly conditions us to treat other people as less than human. And it's something that we need to guard against continuously. Don't you agree? Because it's easy then for me to, um, if I think of you as less than this magnificent creature made in the image of God, it's easy then for me to just write you off and walk away. And so dehumanizing. So I guess one of the ways to avoid that is to constantly elevate, and we see that in the song. They're always elevating one another, always, 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 praising one another. It's a good thing. It's a good discipline. Number four, distraction. A loss of focus leads to a loss of devotion. Many marriages don't end because of a big failure. They end because they drifted apart. We get distracted. You know, friendships take effort. You ever notice that? They do. It's a good effort. It's a good work. It's worth the work, but it does take work to maintain a good friendship, to maintain a healthy marriage. And number five, indecision. The sense that loving someone else is how I feel, see, and it's act and not a decision that I make. But the truth is, it's reversed. Devotion is a decision. I've made a decision to love, regardless of how I feel. My feelings really don't get a say in the matter. I've made a commitment. It's a, it's a mental decision, you see. And so devotion is a decision to stick this out, and that gets tested over time. Author Andy Andrews, he says this, when confronted by a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. The undecided heart searches for an escape. 
That's why chapter 8, verse 6 is so important. She says to him, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Place me like a seal over your heart, she, she says. You know, back then, kings and diplomats, they had rings that were carved a certain way, and that, that ring was a seal. It became a seal. It symbolized him. And so he's writing a document, fold it over, drip some wax, put the ring on it, mark it with his seal, and that means then that this letter came directly from me to you, and in essence, that seal is a mark of ownership. So when she says, Set me like a seal on your heart. She's saying, I want to own you. You are mine. This man is my man. Set me like a seal on your heart. See, give yourself to me and hold nothing back from me, she says. See, that's true in marriage. The truth is, Karis has an exclusive right to me that nobody else has. That's how marriage works. She can expect things of me that nobody else can expect. And that is her right to that, right? Because we have been set as a seal upon one another's heart. She, she owns me of sorts. In verse 6, it goes on to say, its jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. In other words, if she ever gets the sense that my allegiance to her is shifting or waning, she has the right to call me back to it. It's her right. This is, this is what devotion means. We've made this decision to set one another like a seal on one another's heart. And obviously, that gets tested over time. Obviously. And with each test that gets passed, trust gets built which then takes us back to chapter 7. We look at chapter 7, verse 1. He's, he is now singing to her, and he says, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Now, in the ancient world, not everybody wore sandals. Not everybody wore shoes. Only trusted people wore sandals. Slaves and servants were kept barefoot so they wouldn't run away. Um, women who belonged to a king's harem were also kept barefoot for the same reason. Now, I know that's disgusting to you and me, but can you just pause and say, thank you, Jesus, because you have brought us a long way. Amen? <laughs> right, see, we're not back there. We have room to grow, but we are definitely not there anymore. So when he praises her sandaled feet, what's he saying? He's saying, I trust you. It speaks to her character, and it also speaks to their relationship. They've grown this close. They've grown to trust one another. And this is actually a big deal. Trust is a big deal. It doesn't come automatically. You know, after 34 years of marriage, Karis and I are still growing in our trust of one another. Um, when we were first married, we had to learn to trust one another with our finances we, we didn't automatically trust one another with money. And we had some arguments and some bumps along the way there. And some hurts were caused early on that we had to work through and get over. 
And, and the same with our motives. We didn't always trust one another's motives. She's done things that I interpreted as being against me. And I've done things that she's interpreted the same way, being against her, right? We didn't fully trust one another's motives, right? It's been a process. Over 34 years, we're growing in that, and we're still growing. And what I'm saying is simply this, that trust doesn't just come automatically and easy in a relationship, and trust can easily be broken as well. And here in chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon is saying, I trust you completely. Your graceful, jewel-like legs, they didn't wander from the relationship. You keep coming back to it. Author Natasha Pooley says, loyalty is a continuous phenomenon. You don't score points for past action, she says. True. Each and every day, in a million smaller ways, this man and woman took steps toward one another to build up one another. Over time, that trust was built, and it became rock solid, and now he praises her sandaled feet. Pastor Craig Groeschel, he says, true loyalty is proven, not proclaimed. It's not the talk you talk, it's the walk you walk. This woman walked loyalty, and the husband praised her for it. One commentator says he worshiped the ground that she walked on. But you notice then, as he works his way up her body, praising her legs and her waist and her breasts and her neck and her eyes, there's two things then to point out. Verse 4, he says, her eyes are pools of Heshbon. So Heshbon was a community of priests, and these pools would have been used for ritual bathing, for ceremonial washing, to symbolically cleanse sins. And so when he says, your eyes are the pools of Heshbon, he's speaking to her purity. He has, he's discovered over the years that this woman is, her character is, a, is shining. It's pure, see? He's learned that. She's a trustworthy person. She's a truly good woman. Her character is rock solid. And he's learned that over years. And then verse 5, he says, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is not a big mountain, not a tall mountain, but it looks tall because it's surrounded by plains. And so it's flatlands, and then this thing sticks right up out of it. So it looks tall and majestic and so forth as you're driving, you know, as you're coming to it miles from it. And what he's saying is, she is like Mount Carmel. This woman walks with her head held high. She walks in grace. She has, she has a, a stature about her that is majestic, and it's overwhelming, and it's commanding, and it's regal. Now think about it. He's the king. The king is saying this about her. So he is supposed to be regal, commanding, bigger than life, Majestic, all of those things. And now he's saying, oh, you are all these things. And then he says, your hair, look at this, is like tapestry, and the king is held captive in its tresses. Isn't that awesome? Now, just let's dig into that for a second. You know the story of Samson and Delilah? It would have been a common story even in Solomon's day. 
Samson and Delilah predated Solomon by hundreds of years. So Solomon would have been aware of this story. And you know, Samson hooked up with Delilah. Delilah was not a good woman. Samson, of course, had his own problems as well. But Samson was known for being this man with superhuman strength. And Delilah woos him, and she tries to get his secret out of him. And he lies to her a couple of times. Maybe you're familiar with the story. And one of the, one of the lies that he came up with was, hey, if you take my hair and you weave it into a weaver's loom, then I'll be as weak as any other guy. Is that ringing any bells? You familiar with that? So that's the story. And now this king is saying to her, your hair is like this tapestry, this, this, and he goes, I am held, the king is held captive in your tresses. So in the same way that Samson was in the palm of Delilah's hand, he says, I'm in the palm of your hand. You have got me in the tresses of your hair. You've got me. I'm like Samson. I'm as weak as any other guy. Now, that's big coming from a king, wouldn't you say? The king who's used to commanding presence, the king who's used to bossing people around, who's used to being in charge. And, and now he's saying to this woman, wow, you have got me in the palm of your hands. You're sandaled. I trust you, right? Uh, your eyes are the pools of Heshbon. You are, you are a pure woman. Your character is just pure. And he goes, and you've got me in your tresses. Now here's, isn't that something? So what do you have? You've got someone that this man had learned to trust in a time when kings don't trust anybody because everybody's out to get you as the king. And he's saying, in the time that we've spent together, I have learned and I have discovered you are someone I can completely count on and trust in. And she is leaning on his arm, and she's saying, I feel the same way about you. I lean and I trust, on, trust in you. And so this couple, over time, the power of devotion is they have come to completely be able to relax in one another's presence. They, they have come to what Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned. They are naked and without shame. Completely vulnerable to one another. See that? This is the power of devotion. You know, the Bible says that the two become one flesh, right? But that word become, that's, that, that doesn't happen overnight. The truth is, Karis and I are still becoming one flesh. It's taken 34 years to get this far, and if God gives us more time, we'll spend the rest of our time working on becoming one flesh. It's a process of devotion, year after year, day after day, moment after moment, see? So what have we picked up from devotion today, okay? Five quick things, four quick things, even shorter. Five, four quick things. No six, no seven, no, I'm just joking, four. So number one is devotion. Devotion begins with a decision. It's a decision that I will be the kind of person whom others can trust. 
And this is not something that I proclaim. It's something that I prove by being faithful over time, especially when it's hard. This is one reason why sexual purity is so important before marriage. Because if I cannot control my urges before I'm married, how will my future spouse know that I can control them after I'm married? See, I actually begin demonstrating devotion before I'm even married. Second, devotion is a direction. Day by day, we move towards one another. It's a daily pursuit. We prioritize one another. Karis, you can come and play if you want. We prioritize one another. We, we direct our attention to one another. We understand that our natural tendency is to drift apart. And so we resist that by intentionally coming together. De- devotion is a direction. Number three, devotion is about dependability. My ability doesn't matter as much as my dependability. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus said, let your yes be yes. So if my bride has counted on me time and time again, and I have let her down, then I have not demonstrated devotion. And there are really no excuses that make it better. Have you noticed that? The more excuses someone gives for their lack of devotion, the less you trust them. Devotion is literally being dependable in the small day-to-day things. You're not loyal in one day, you're loyal day-to-day. And then number four, devotion then is a discipline. I practice it every day. I practice it. I'm intentional. I say that I will be there at five, and I'm there by five. I say I'll mow the lawn, and I'm going to mow the lawn. I say I'll take the kids swimming, so I take the kids swimming, right? It's intentional. It's a discipline. Discipline of devotion. And that becomes the backbone of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 says, Love always perseveres. It always perseveres. The Greek word for persevere is literally the word, is the word hupomeno, and it literally means to stay under the load. Persevering. Yeah, you notice perseverance, it implies difficulty, doesn't it? You don't persevere an ice cream cone, right? Really muscling this down, <laughs> right? No, you enjoy an ice cream cone. But you persevere difficult things, and you do it because that changes your character. It strengthens your character. And discipline, devotion then, is a discipline. I stay under the load over the long haul in the little things day by day. But isn't this what Jesus did for us? When I think about it, it's Jesus' loyalty that inspires my loyalty. It's his devotion that inspires my devotion. We celebrate communion today. We, we celebrate his, his work on the cross. He, he went all that way. How, how far did Jesus' devotion take him? It took him to the cross. He's that devoted to you and to me. And and he would say, I love you. I did it because I love you. His love is displayed in his devotion to you and to me. So his loyalty inspires my loyalty. We love his faithfulness, so let's imitate it. Amen? So here's here's how we want to close this morning as we pray. As I've been talking today, 
uh, you know, devotion is a big subject. And so I think it's important for us to narrow it down and make it super practical. So maybe it's something in your marriage. Maybe it's something in another friendship that you have with someone. Maybe it's something at work, in a work relationship. Okay? Are you thinking about some area where maybe you've not displayed devotion, you've not been devoted, and you're like, okay, God, I'm going to step up my game in that area right there, and I'm going to exercise the discipline of devotion in this area. Does that make sense? And, and I'll begin today, and I'll go day by day, little by little, I'm going to commit myself to that, to demonstrating devotion in this area. I think we need to, we need to make it bite-sized because it's really a big topic. Let's pray. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. 